Last October, I was speaking in Scotland, in Glasgow, on Sunday morning, and um, the group I was with, we made a mistake. The pastor had said, it's really a safe area, but he said, I wouldn't leave my car unlocked on the street if I were you. And we, we locked it when we first got out of the van. And, um, but one of the, one of, one of the guys in our group left something in the van and went back to, the, to retrieve it. And when he, when he, uh, went back to the van, he forgot to hit the power lock switch and left our van wide open. And we had a great service that morning. We were all kind of excited about it, pumped about what happened. But when we got into our van, our mood just sank because somebody had broken into our van. Somebody had violated our space and took our stuff. There was one guy who had like a $300 coat and, uh, it was gone. Another guy had a cell phone. It was gone. And a few other things. I can't remember, maybe a camera or something like that. But I think what we remembered the most is we had a, um, a GPS system that we had rented from the, um, uh, one of the car rental places at the Glasgow airport. And it was gone. And, and you've never bought a GPS system until you've paid the car rental place for one. So, uh, and, and thankfully, I wasn't the one who did it. But it, it was just, uh, it, was, it was a tough thing. And I remember how bad we felt and how it changed our mood so quickly to find out that somebody had invaded our space and took our stuff. Some of you have experienced something like that or worse. Maybe you um, left your car in a parking lot and you were expecting to go back out and find it. When you got out there, there was an empty car space, parking space, because somebody had taken your car. Some of you may know what it's like to come home only to find your house broken into, ransacked. Somebody had invaded your space and taken your stuff. But thankfully, in the United States, we're very blessed. We have insurance here, and, and, and like all the stuff that was stolen in, in Glasgow was replaced. And, and if you had your car stolen, I hope it was insured because you were able to replace it. And, and even though you might not have been able to replace some of the sentimental loss if somebody broke into your home, chances are, if you had insurance, you were able to, to replace the, the items that you need the most. But what challenges me and and oftentimes really gets me right down to the core when I look at people I love in our culture today is I find people who have stuff stolen from them that can't be replaced. They get ripped off and they can't can't find a way to, to get back what's been lost. I mean, you know, there are people I think today that say... I had a marriage here a little while ago, but it's gone now. I, I had a great relationship here, but now it's gone. Or I had a great relationship with my kids, but now it's gone. I mean, stuff that, that, that can't be replaced. And so my question for all of us here today is, who's the one who's taking stuff from us? Who's the thief? Where, where, does, the, where does the minus symbol come in here? We're in a series right now called How Life Works. And we're, we're looking at mathematic symbols because math is just one of those things that works whether we agree with it or not. It's just something subject, uh, objective rather, that's in our world that we have to adjust to. And there, there are five important truths that I want us all to think about because they teach us how life works. Last week, we talked about the most important one of all, which is that God adds. Whenever you see a plus sign from now on, I hope you think about God. And we said we think it's somewhat interesting that the plus sign is also the sign for the cross. Because anytime you have an encounter with God on his terms, you always walk away with more than you came with. Just like in the dance that you saw a few moments ago. I mean, anytime you have an encounter with God, you're going to be added to. And he has a marvelous way of adding to our life, not just in this life, but in the life to come. But just as God adds, there is someone who takes away from you. And we know him as Satan or the devil. And I know I just lost some of you right now. Because it could be that, you know, many of us have the idea, well, I kind of believe in God. I'm pretty sure there's a God. Because all my life I've been taught there was. And and I kind of have this sense that, that God is there for me somewhere in the background. But I don't know that I really believe in a Satan or devil. But I'm going to tell you what I think today, and you just see what you think about it, evaluate it 
Um, I think at the core of every human being, even the most rock-ribbed atheist, I think we all have a sense that somewhere out there, there is a cosmic force that is for us, and there's a cosmic force that's out there against us. I think every human being knows that. And it finds its way into our music, into our, into our literature, into our, our motion pictures. Because think about how many books that you've read or how many movies that you've watched in which there is a superhero and there's the arch villain. I think we all know at our core there is a force that is working for us and there is a force that is working against us. The great thing about the Bible is the Bible gives us the, the person, the name of the force working for us. It is, he is a person. He is God. His son is Jesus Christ. There is also his Holy Spirit. That is the force that is working for us. The force that was working against us is also a person according to the Bible, and the Bible calls him Satan or the devil. Somebody still would say, well, Mark, you've succeeded in weirding me out today because I, I didn't come to church expecting to hear somebody talk about the devil. Just being straight up honest with you right now, if I knew how to go find my car, get in my car right now and drive away at this moment and not bring this message, I would do it because I don't like talking about the devil. I don't like thinking about him. But the Bible tells me he exists. The Bible tells me he's a thief and that he's ripping me off. And I need to think about him. And because of that, you know, what the Bible says, you also need to be thinking about him. For some of us, our issue with the devil is that we've, you know, we've kind of gotten this idea that's come to us from middle age art, you know, because in the middle ages, people were very superstitious and they drew these incredibly ridiculous, hideous caricatures of the devil. Or maybe you've like watched movies like The Exorcist or maybe, you know, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or something. And you've seen Satan sort of presented in this hideous kind of cartoon way. And you're saying to yourself, at the end of the day, I think it's just all fiction. It's all fiction. But the Bible doesn't present Satan the way that I just described. In fact, the very name Satan means enemy. Just means somebody who doesn't like you, somebody who hates you, somebody who is trying to get you. And then the word devil simply means slanderer, somebody who is saying bad things about you. So could I get you just for a few moments to consider backing away from the idea that Satan is this hideous cartoon figure to thinking about Satan as being who he really is, and that is a sophisticated angel. Actually, Satan is a lot more Gordon Gecko than he is Freddy Krueger. He's more Wall Street than Elm Street. He is a sophisticated angel. The Bible gives us his history. The Bible says that when God created the world, he also created some angels who basically were assistants to God. They were given great power. They were given great uh, charisma. And they were also given something that God gives to all of his creations. They were given free choice. God does not want to create robots. See, what God desires from you and me, he desires our love and our trust. But if he makes us robots, what good is that? So in every one of God's creations, he gives us choice. He gives us the choice to either go with him or not go with him. And so he did with the angels. Well, the most beautiful and powerful and attractive of the angels was an angel named Lucifer. And, um, you know, he did for a while, I guess, what God wanted him to do. But after a while, he decided he was tired of God giving him instructions. And he stood and looked at himself in the mirror too long, I guess, one day. And he said, hey, why should God be God? But instead of, like, rising up against God right at that moment, the Bible tells us that he went and tried to stir up an insurrection with the rest of the angels. And he, he probably hit them with stuff like this. You know, aren't you kind of tired of just taking instructions all the time? I mean, after all, who does God think he is? We're powerful. We're beautiful too. If we were to like pull together and all be one force, we could take over heaven and push God off the throne. And the book of Revelation indicates that about a third of the angels said, yeah, we'll, we'll go with you. And so I guess they had a meeting with God and 
Lucifer, Satan, walked in and said, God, we think your time is up. We're going to now be God. And God said, I don't think you're going to be. And God thumped him out of heaven and, and, and the demons, the angels with him. And so from that point on, they're kind of locked into combat against God. I mean, the Bible tells us the story. They're God's enemies. They're barred from heaven, except occasional opportunities for Satan to go in and accuse us. But there's that enemy relationship. In the meantime, God decides he's going to make a world, and he does. And then not only does God make a world, he makes the animal kingdom. And then finally, on the last day of creation, God sculpts a clay figure out of the ground, blows his breath into Adam, and Adam becomes a living soul. Takes a rib, and from that DNA makes Eve, and had the first couple on the earth at the same time. And God put them in paradise. You know, most of my, most of my life, I've been told that the reason why people act out or misbehave is because of their environment. And sometimes I think there's a truth in that. But in our first parents, they had the most perfect environment because they had everything they could possibly want. They had food to eat. They had God's personal company. They lived in this incredible paradise. They had no pain, no suffering, no death, no aging. I mean, it was just awesome. But God had said to Adam and Eve, there's one tree in the middle of the garden. It's the dark side. And I don't want you messing with that. You don't need to know the dark side. You know everything good. And by the way, wouldn't you like to live in a world where nobody had a dark side? Adam and Eve had that opportunity. But around the corner is Satan. He's got to deal with God. He's had problems with God from the, you know, from the time he rebelled against God. And now he can't do anything to God. He can't strike God. But he wants to strike what God loves. And so here are Adam and Eve living in this perfect environment. God has said to them, just leave the tree in the middle alone. It's the dark side. You don't need to know it. And Satan comes along to Eve and he's kind of watching her and he kind of says to her, hey, I heard a rumor around here. I heard this rumor that did God, did God say that you weren't supposed to eat of this fruit? And Eve said, yeah, we can have everything we want, but, but not, that, not that tree right there. <laughs> Satan said, you know, you know, there's something you should know, Eve. I've been around longer than you have, and I know God better than you know God. And it's not like he's trying to help you here. God understands that the moment you eat of that fruit, you're going to be as smart as he is. And you can, do you hear the familiarity come out? You can actually be God if you eat this fruit, because you will know what God does not want you to know, and God is trying to keep things from you. If you will eat the fruit, you'll be just like God. <laughs> one thing you should know about Satan, if you imagine him as a baseball pitcher, he just has one pitch, and it's a curveball. He hung it out there. It looked like it was going to come right over the plate, but just as Eve swung, the ball dropped. And she ate the fruit, the Bible says, called Adam and said, here, honey, have a piece of this. He ate it. God held him accountable because God had given him the instructions. And from that point on, here's something that happened. When God created Adam and Eve, God had said to them, right as he gave them the garden, here's the title deed. You guys own the place. Take care of it. You know, take care of the, the environment here. You, you, you protect it. God's, God gave to Adam and Eve the title deed to the world. And from the moment that Adam and Eve decided to give in to Satan, what they did was they turned around and handed the title deed of this world to the Satan. This is why things are the way they are today. It's why we kind of shrink back at looking at it every once in a while, but evil seems to be the predominant force in the world. There's God at work, there's Satan at work. And in case we get too unhappy with Adam and Eve for bringing all the bad stuff in the world from their misbehavior, isn't it true that we've stood in the batter's box too and we've whiffed at Satan's curveballs? Because he's hung stuff out and we thought it was going to come right over the plate, but we bit and we swung and all we got was air. 
So that day when Satan talked our first parents into screwing up, that was a very important day in your and my life, but there was another very, very important day in your and my life. It was never God's will for us to be separated from him. Sure enough, our first parent's sin brought us into that situation where evil was predominant in the world. And then beyond that, we've had our own contribution to that, but God wanted to find a way to pull you close to himself. So God had to put another batter in the box. One thing we learn from history is that in Bible days, oftentimes armies would not want to fight because it would result in carnage. And so when the, when, the, when the countries came against each other or the regions came against each other, what they would often do is they would say, you pick your best guy and we'll put our best guy out there and those two guys can go mano a mano. If your guy wins, all of you win. If our guy wins, all of us win. And that way they could fight and there wouldn't be a lot of injury and death. Well, that's what happened when Adam and Eve were at the plate. They represented all of us. Basically, we were on base and they struck out. But God put another batter in the box. It was his son, Jesus. Jesus was God and human at the same time. With Mary as his mother and God as his father, he had skin on like you and I do. He, had, he was human like Adam and Eve, but he also had God as his father, the God-man, the two-in-one, the superhero. And all throughout his 33 years, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Satan threw every curveball at him. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. So if you've ever been tempted in a particular way, Jesus was tempted in the same way. But one thing about Satan, he's no gentleman. He's not a fair fighter. If he can catch you when you're discouraged, when you're down, when you're hurting, when somebody's done something wrong to you, if he can catch you at a moment like that, he understands that he has a little bit of an advantage. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. He was hungry. He'd gone without food. It was a testing time for Jesus. It was right after his baptism. The Bible says he was led out into the wilderness, and for 40 days he didn't eat. He, he was just there just dealing with all the difficulties of that testing. So at the end of that 40-day fast, when Jesus was weak and, and hungry, Satan shows up. And the first thing he says is, man, listen, you got to be hungry. <laughs> 40 days, no food. I bet you're wishing you didn't have that body now. Hey, I got an idea. You, you, you see all these rocks around here? I saw what you did the other day. You know, with the loaves and fish, that was cool. You're really something. If I were you, you know what I'd do? I'd take these rocks around here, I'd turn them into bread, I'd eat. If I were you, it's just me talking, but that's what I'd do. <laughs> there it is. Curveball right over. Looks like it's coming right down the plate. Jesus is hungry. Doesn't it make sense? The only problem is, if he does it, he'll do exactly what Adam and Eve did. He'll do what Satan wanted him to do. And Jesus just left the bat on his shoulder. You can just see it one hand, not even, not even, not even going after it. I mean, I, I don't know what Jesus said to him exactly. I think he said something like this. He's saying, what's it, what's it with you and food? I mean, you got Adam and Eve on fruit. Now you're trying to get me on bread. What is the deal here? You, just, you don't have much imagination here? Don't you know what the Bible says? Man shall not live by bread alone. Don't mess with me. So he said, okay, pitch two. He takes Jesus up on top of a tall building. He said, hey, you know what? You, you quote in scripture there. I've been reading the Bible too, right over in the book of Psalms that whatever you do, you know, the angels take care of you. You know, there are people down there, Jesus, who don't really believe you're the son of God. You're doing all that talking and miracles stuff. I had a lot of people that don't believe you. Listen, I got an idea for you, Jesus. Here's how you can prove that you're the son of God. Why don't you just jump off this building? God will have his angels catch you. It'll be on CNN, Fox, and the MSNBC tonight. Bad on Jesus' shoulder. Not, not chasing a bad pitch here. 
So Satan now gets ready to throw the third pitch at him. He takes him up to a high place. I, don't, I looked at the Greek language that it was written in. I can't really be sure what he was saying, but it looks like he like, took Jesus the suspended place above. And um, because both Jesus and he, even though Jesus was in a body, Jesus is still spirit. And he, he said to Jesus, I got a deal for you now. I know that bread deal. Hey, I was just kidding about that. And, and, and you know, the thing about catching you and all that, I, that probably wasn't the smartest idea, but I do really have a deal for you this time. Ever since Adam and Eve surrendered the title deed to me, I, I have all the kingdoms of the world. Here's the deal, Jesus. If you will just bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you. Now, Satan is smart, and he knew Jesus was smart. Psalm 2 had already prophesied that Jesus would indeed have all the kingdoms of the world, but there was a little issue between Jesus at that point and Jesus inheriting all the kingdoms of the world from his father. It was called the cross. And we sang about that a few moments ago. Nobody ever suffered like Jesus suffered on the cross. And Satan was saying, here's the deal, Jesus. I, I can, I can, listen, if you will do this my way, if you'll have an encounter with me on my terms, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Think through that for a moment. Even though that looked like that was hanging out over the plate, that was the ultimate curveball because even if Satan did surrender the title deed to all the kingdoms of the world, if Jesus was worshiping Satan, who would actually have all the kingdoms of the world? See, anytime you have an encounter with God on his terms, you always walk away with more than you came from. Anytime you have an encounter with Satan on his terms, you always walk away with less than what you came, from, came with. Jesus just laid the bat on his shoulder and said, hey, the Bible says you shouldn't mess with God. And the Bible says the devil left him for a little while and didn't hassle him again for a while, but he just kept it up. Now, I've talked about stuff today that you and I have a hard time relating to. Whenever Adam and Eve were in the world, we don't exactly know. It was a long time ago. And you and I are not there. And we're the recipients of the issue, but we weren't really there. And then we think about Jesus, you know, there on the temptation mountain with Satan. And, and that's a long time ago, too. But let me ask you a question. How does he work in our lives? Because let me just tell you, I, I'm going to tell you today. I'm somebody that Satan has stolen from. There's stuff in my years that Satan has stolen from me that I'll never get back. And I'm guessing that you would agree with me and say, Mark, that's true. I'm not sure if I know it's Satan or not, but I've, had, I've been ripped off. I've been, have had stuff taken away from me. How does he do it? And I know I may have even scared some of you already because you're saying, wow, Mark, this talk about Satan really scares me because if he can take stuff away from me, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. Let me help you sleep tonight, okay? Here's the deal. Satan can never steal from you unless you believe one of his lies. That's how he works. Jesus called him the father of lies. He says he can't tell the truth. You know those pitches that look like they're over the plate but are curveballs? I mean, that's how he works. He, st he steals from you and me by telling us lies. You say, well, Mark, I don't think I've ever heard him talk to me. He's a spirit. He works in the spirit world. I think it goes something like this. Just like he talked to Eve and just like he talked to Jesus, I think he comes to us and just puts a little seed thought in our head. Here's a guy. He's been married a few years. Life is not what he thought it was going to be when he got married. Now they're kids and bills. And Satan comes along and kind of whispers to him saying, you know, this isn't going real just me talking, but 
Maybe you got the wrong gal. Now, here's what happens with those thoughts. It's like, it's like they begin to spin around in our heads. But Satan's thought, thoughts are sticky. They're like Velcro because here's the deal. Whatever, whenever Satan tells you a lie, there will always be some debris around there from real-life situations that will seem to corroborate what he's saying. So here's this guy saying, well, you know what? Maybe I did marry the wrong, wrong woman, you know? And then she'll have a bad day and say something, and it's cross or whatever. And it's like, uh-oh. And then that little seed picks up some debris, and it's bigger now. And it keeps, and then this will go wrong, and that will go wrong. And before long, it's not a little seed anymore. It's a little ball that's spinning around. And before long, a marriage goes down. There's a woman at work. Things aren't going great in her marriage. She's struggling to make it. She's working hard, taking care of things at home, trying to deal with a man that's sometimes a pain in the neck and further south. And Satan comes along and says, hey, that guy at that workstation over there, every time he talks to you, he's always nice. Hey, maybe, maybe he understands you and your husband doesn't. Seed begins to circulate. And after he comes by and he's, he's dressed well, looks really nice. Oh, my husband looks, you know, all he puts on is that nasty sweatshirt when he comes home. And it grows and becomes bigger and bigger. Here's a young, here's a young woman, teenager. And she knows maybe she's not the cheerleader. Maybe she's not, you know, the person who gets elected to prom queen and all this stuff. And, and Satan will come along to her and he'll say, you know what? Maybe if you're a little freer with your body, guys would like you. Or he says to a young man, you know, the whole world is out to get you. Have you noticed that? And then there's that little seed there. Everybody's, do you know your parents are always getting on to you and the teachers, they don't understand you and the police, they always pull you over and give you a ticket. Have you ever noticed how that the whole world is against you and that little seed cycles around the brain and gets larger and larger? I mean, how do you, why do you think people shoot up their schools? Why do you think people shoot up their workplaces? Do you think that they just woke up one day and decided to just do something crazy like that? When you start listening, and I, and, I, and I know, I know that mental illness plays a part in this, and, and that's over my head. But sometimes I do wonder what happens, is it chicken or egg? Because I, when I, we start listening to people talk, they will start saying things like, well, you know, even when I was a kid, I used to think that everybody hated me and everybody was against me and the bullies were picking on me. And yes, maybe that was true. But as that seed that Satan planted cycled around the brain, it stuck and it picked up debris until finally. And again, I'm not saying that we're all going to turn into serial killers a million miles away from that. I'm just saying that's how he works. He just plants a thought. But it only works if we believe it. Hey, does he plant thoughts in my head? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm capable as much as anybody else, Satan putting a thought in my head. And, and, and if I don't stop it when it's small, it'll get larger and larger and larger until it's just about to control me. How do you deal with Satan? Well, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, it's okay, because I think most of these verses will be up on the iMag. But look, real quickly, I want to just walk you through some Scripture, because the Bible tells us that there's one thing you need to know about Satan and several things that you need to do. Here's the first thing. Here's what you need to know. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Hey, 
again, I, I'm, I'm just kind of knocking the stuff that we see in the movies and, you know, the artwork that we've seen. Satan's not like that. If he came to you and said, hey, I got a thought that's just going to blow your marriage up, <laughs> would you listen to him? If he came to you and said, hey, I got this deal for you, it's going to screw your life up 12 different ways, and, and you're going to wake up one day and just wish you'd never been born, would we, would we, we'd never buy that. But the Bible says he doesn't show up as the disaster that he is, but he shows up as an angel of light. How does that work out practically? There's one statement that I always feel bad when I hear. In fact, sometimes it just makes me so upset that I want to kick something solid. It goes like this. Somebody I love very much, somebody who knows better, is about to do something totally stupid. Something that will ruin his life, something that will ruin his family's life. Sometimes it's like, well, I need to leave my wife. I've met this girl. Or I need to leave my husband. I've met this guy. And I'm saying, you know better than that. You can't do that. And then they'll say something like this to me. They'll say, but she makes me happy, and God loves me, and God wants me to be happy. God wants you to do right. I mean, because here's the deal. Anytime we do wrong, it eventually will not make us happy. Because anytime you have an encounter with Satan on his terms, you're going to walk away with less than you came with. Came with. But you see, when that person, and, and here's the thing, I think when that person tells me that, they really believe that. They really feel like they have found something good. Why? Because Satan presents himself and his ideas as this is good. You know, he didn't say to Eve, if you eat this fruit, it's going to mess you up forever and everybody that's your child or grandchild or great-grandchild. He said, this is good. So how do we deal with him? Real quickly, let me give you a couple of texts of scripture and then we'll, we'll close this out. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, the Bible says, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm. Now, just mark that in your mind. Stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. If you have an enemy right now, just, just say, hey, that person is not my enemy. I don't fight against people. The Bible says we fight against, there's four designations there in the rest of the chapter that have to do with demonic activity, spirit forces. Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, put on the armor of God and stand firm. What's the armor of God? You can read about it in Ephesians chapter 6, but real, let me just give it to you in real practical terms. The armor of God is this. It is, number one, knowing what God has to say in his word, believing what God has to say in his word, and praying. That's pretty much the armor of God. It's knowing the word of God, believing the word of God, and praying. How many of us have gone to church all our lives and we prayed a prayer? You know, some of us even repeat it in church, as the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be set apart. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, forgive us our trespasses as we've already forgiven those who trespass against us. But what, is the, what did Jesus say next? Lead us not into temptation. What that means is that that thought that's spinning around in the head. Jesus said every day, pray and ask God, lead us not into temptation, but here's the big one, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is a force to deal with the enemy. And, and, and I pray every day. I say, Lord, you know, deliver me from the enemy today. Deliver my wife. Deliver my kids. Deliver my granddaughter. Deliver the people of New Spring Church. Lord, deliver all the people in my life. Deliver your people from the enemy, from the evil one. Prayer is a weapon. Let me show you one more, and then I'll end the message. This is in 1 Peter chapter 5. By the way, this is really cool. Because uh, on the night of Jesus' arrest, Jesus was praying, but he took his disciples with him. They didn't feel like praying. They wanted to go to sleep. And the, the kind of self-appointed leader of Jesus' group was Peter. He always shot his mouth off. And Jesus said to Peter, hey, Peter, listen, I know something you don't know. Satan has desired to mess you up. He's already asked God for permission. 
And he's saying, Peter, you need to pray. Peter's saying, oh, I'm okay. And, of course, you know what happened. He crashed and burned. He denied the Lord three times and so on. But now Peter's writing as an old man, an older and wiser man. Look at what he says. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, verse 9. This is the second time we've seen this. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. He will run from you. Wow, that's powerful. What are your strategies in dealing with the enemy? First of all, you learn what God has to say. You believe it. You pray. But now we're given two more very important strategies to deal with Satan. Here's the first one. The Bible says, resist him firmly. I'm talking to some of you, you're God followers. Sometime back there, something started circling and it picked up debris and now it's big and you have a sin pattern in your life and you know it's wrong and you hate it and you hate yourself and you pray and you ask God to forgive you time and time and time again. And some of you may have actually come to the place where you've come to believe it is not possible for me to overcome this. I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is you can. The bad news is it's hard. It has to do with that stand firm. Here's what you have to do. When those thoughts get bigger and bigger in your head, whenever that temptation is there, you've got to say no. But it's not enough to say no. You've got to string some no's together. See, many of us, when we, 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 you know, we we're tempted and we say, no, Satan, I'm not going to do that. But then tomorrow we say yes. And we say, oh, God, I'm sorry. I did it again. What's the matter with me? So the next day he comes along and you're saying no to it. But then the next day you say yes to it. And there's never any deliverance. Why? Because you really have to string some no's together. Because every time you say no to Satan, you get just a little bit stronger. Are you ready for the biggest one of all? Do you think Satan is afraid of you? Or he's afraid of me? No. He's an angel. He's more powerful. But I know somebody he is afraid of. And the Bible says, did you read it a moment ago? The Bible says, check in with God. Submit to God. I mean, listen, if you're being hassled by the enemy, you just go to God and say, God, listen, I I know I've been screwing things up. I'm just checking in here. I just want to do whatever you want me to do. Lord, what is it you want me to do? See, that's where Satan got messed up in the first place. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And he thinks you don't either. But when you submit to God and you go to God and say, God, whatever your plan is for my life, I'm ready for it. God, I'm obeying. All of a sudden, because of who you're hanging with, Satan gets afraid of you. And the Bible said it. We just read it. The Bible says he will run screaming away from you. Why? Well, in case I've left any of you with the impression today that this is, there's this battle between God and Satan and the outcome is still to be determined, could I tell you that's not the case? As we sang a few moments ago, Satan's already defeated and Jesus is king. It started in the garden and it ended. Some of you thought I was going to say in an empty tomb, but that's not where it ended. Oh, you say, I've got it, Mark. It ended at the cross. No, it didn't end at the cross. It started in a garden, and it ended in a garden. The place was Gethsemane. It was the night before Jesus was arrested. Satan was down to one pitch. I've heard songs, and I enjoy the songs, but the songs kind of indicate that the night Jesus died, the demons were dancing, and there was a party in hell because Jesus was dead. Forget about that. Satan never questioned Jesus would come out of the grave. The battle was already finished at that point. 
Satan only had one hope in mind. Only one left, last thing. That, that that last batter in the box, Jesus, there was only the hope that maybe out of self-preservation he would say, I'm not going to the cross. And now Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and Satan is at the mound and he's down to one pitch. And this time he can't throw a curveball, he has to throw a fastball. He's going to have to try to take it right down the middle of the plate as fast as he can throw it. He's got to come with the one thing that he knows is in Jesus' mind. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, with all of us hanging in the balance, it's almost like God put all of us sinners on base with Jesus at the bat. And Satan came right down the middle with the only pitch that he had left, which is this, you really don't want to do this, do you? And we know it was true because Jesus that night in the garden had spoken that when he said, Father, if there's some other way, let this cup pass from me. And Satan sent it right down the middle. You don't really want to do this. But the crash you heard, the crack you heard, was Jesus taking a full rip at it when he said, but not my will, but your will be done. And the, and the, there's the side of the ball leaving the stadium and going out of the stadium and hitting a windshield, the devil's windshield, and setting off his car alarm in the parking lot. And the good news is we were on base. And that is why every weekend I stand before you and I say this, or I, I, you watch me on television and I say this, if you will give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, all you have to do is pray and receive Christ and everything in the future is settled. And somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't understand how so much can be settled with a prayer. It wasn't settled with a prayer. It was settled by Jesus so that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then when he carried his cross up the hill and then when he stepped out of the grave under his own power, that was when he was settled. Listen, it is not hard to be a pinch runner when somebody hits a home run. And that is who you and I are. So Satan can't mess with you eternally. All he can do is hassle you now and steal from you now. But only then if you believe one of his lies. I'm just wondering if there are people like me today. I mean, I woke up in the night thinking about this. Guys, I'm telling you the honest truth. If I could have known some way not to have brought these three weekend messages. I mean, last week I could have preached 12 times when I'm talking about God adding. But I'll tell you, I don't want to talk about this. I mean, I wish I didn't have to talk about it. But it's real, isn't it? And you and I need to be on guard. I'm wondering if there's somebody like me here today who's just saying, you know, I've bought enough lies. I've swung at enough curveballs. From this point on, I'm going to just submit myself over here to God and say, God, I'm going to trust that you know better and I'm going to hang with you and whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. And I guarantee if you do that, the thief will quit stealing from you. That doesn't mean that other people will not hurt you because there's a big world, a lot of bad stuff out there, but it does mean this. It means that you will not willingly surrender one thing in your life or your marriage or your relationship with your kids or your friends. You will not surrender one thing to the enemy. That is what I want in my life today. Maybe life will be bad for me at times. Maybe things will hurt me. Maybe I'll get cut with the broken glass of this world, but by God's grace, I don't want to put anything out there on the table for the enemy to take away from me. And my prayer is that you'll feel the same way today. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Right now, Father, if any of us is believing a lie, 
I pray that you'll show us that it's a lie. Father, however big that thought is, this rambling around in our head, God, I just pray you'd help us to say to ourselves, it's a lie, and I don't have to believe it. I pray for every, every kid, every teen, every single, every young married person, every old married person. Lord, I just pray for all of us that you'll help us in Jesus' name. Still pray with me, please. What Satan would like to have more than anything else is he'd, have, he'd like to have that eternal part of you that's inside of your body right now. And he can't have that either unless you let him have it. Because the Bible tells us hell wasn't made for people. Hell was made for the devil. And I'm telling you, I'm glad he's going. Some of you may think the devil rules hell. He doesn't rule hell. He's going to catch hell forever. He's going to get the worst of it. But hell wasn't made for people. God made heaven for people. In fact, that's why he sent Jesus. And that's why it's so simple to accept him. I mean, every weekend I just pray a prayer with you, and I always offer a chance. If you haven't accepted Christ, do it right now. And it's happened in both services already. I got to meet people last night who had accepted Christ. What a great experience. But if you've never invited Christ into your heart and life, you can do it right now, and you can celebrate victory even before it happens. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. You don't have to use my words if you don't want to. God's just mostly looking for a yes. But if you want to pray with me, I'm going to pray this prayer slowly so you have time to think about it. It goes like this. Jesus, I know I've done wrong. But I believe you died to pay for my wrong. I accept you as my Savior and my King. In Jesus' name, amen. That's small, isn't it? But that's all God's looking for. God just wants you to open the door to him. Hey, I got a gift for you. I know this. we just went through this so quickly. You may have made the most important decision of your life in just a matter of seconds. And you may say, Mark, I'm not sure what's happened to me. I have a gift I want to give you. It's got some DVDs in it and some stuff to help you understand what it means to be a Christ follower. It's free. It will not cost you a penny. If you'll take your worship folder, there's a detachable part. You can write your name and address on there. And just check the box that says, Mark, I prayed with you to receive Christ today. If you'll put it in the boxes by the back doors, the boxes at the bottom of the staircase, I'll mail it to you this week. If you're like me and you don't like to wait, you can bring your card straight back to the middle doors there or at the bottom in the middle to New Spring Store or guest services. Just hand them the card. You don't have to make a speech. Just say, I prayed with Mark, and they'll give it to you today, and you can take it home with you. Guys, I am totally jazzed about next week's message. That one I really do want to preach. It's on multiplication. How does life work in the sort of multiplication, exponential kind of way? I cannot wait. In fact, if you guys will stay, I'll go ahead and know. I cannot wait to bring that message. So uh, please be back next week.